The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station, JVC Broadcasting Management, or its sponsors. Welcome to Crime and Justice Radio, where we talk all things crime, justice, mayhem, and the courts with expert insiders and legal outcasts. My name is Aida Leisenring. And this song was brought to you by my co-host, Bruce Barquette. Oh, brought to us by the season. <laughs> the holiday season is upon us. We're right in the teeth of it, so to speak. And it's it's a great season, and it fits well with crime and justice uh, themes. Okay, it, let, let's hear why, Father Barquette. It's not Father Barquette. <laughs> it, it, it is, look, this is, it's Hanukkah. Well, the first day of Hanukkah was yesterday, I believe. Uh, this is the fourth and last week of the Advent season for those who celebrate. And it is the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. Hanukkah, as I'm sure you know, is a story of a inability to read scripture because they didn't believe they had enough of the Torah. They didn't believe they had enough oil for the lamps. They only had oil for one night and actually the, the lamp burned for eight nights uh, and they were able to read and pray. And Advent is a time of patience, anticipation, and great hope. And the scripture readings for the Advent season, you're looking at me like I'm a little crazy, Listen, just for a second, this is what we, we kind of build up to towards Christmas and towards the end of Advent. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf be cleared. Then the lame shall leap like a stag, the tongue of the mute will sing. Uh, he has sent me to bring tidings of great news, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for captives, and release some darkness for, for of prisoners to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor to comfort all who mourn those themes the mountain shall be flattened the valley shall be raised the prisoner shall be freed the lame shall walk are the things that Advent and Hanukkah and other uh, religious ideology or, or theories bring to us at this time of the year and for people in prison for people who are incarcerated, for people who are facing severe punishment, execution even, uh, they should take great heart in in this time of the year. So I'm thrilled to be here. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. They should definitely enjoy the year we're in and thank the Lord that we have Merrick Garland and not William Barr in charge of executions. Um, I'll never forget William Barr's rapid speed. Um, how many people did he execute within 30 days? Was Thir- it 13? 13. Well, uh, just 13 who had been sitting on death row for 20 years, awaiting appeals, awaiting further investigations, not truly believing that they would actually be executed. And then he woke up one day, made the announcement, and like rapid fire, one after the other, was executed. And imagine how traumatizing that was, not only for their families, potentially even the victims' families who got word of it last minute, maybe some of which had actually changed their views. I think one family had changed their views and didn't want the individual executed. But 
Um, also for death row inmates that had formed friendships and bonds with the only people that they could possibly form friendships and bonds and have human contact with to watch their friend of 20 years be sent to the execution cell in preparation, those eerie 24 hours where they train you, they tell you what's going to happen, they watch you, they observe you, they say their goodbyes, you can have a, a priest uh, or whatever your religious affiliation is come in, you say your goodbyes to family members, that is heartbreaking. Um, and yes, I, I do actually, I was, I was teasing you for um, playing Christmas music and making this reading, but it's what we do. We help the blind, we help the broken, the brokenhearted prisoners, those living in darkness, and we give them hope and we give them a chance. We fight for the underdog, and that's why I've always been very proud to be a criminal defense lawyer. And we have some fairly good news on the death row front. We, we, we do indeed. Just to follow up on what you just mentioned, in 2020, you know how many executions there were in uh, the United States? Executions. Not just federal, but state overall wide. 80, How many? 85. That's shocking. 85. In 2021, it dropped to uh, 11. Uh, and this year, I only have the statistic as of April, was only three. It's been going down. And it's been going down for a reason because, in part, uh, I think the country is moving away from the death penalty. And you don't have thir- you don't have the federal government leading the way with thirteen executions. And no, in which a, a lot of people, of even even you know conservatives that followed uh, William Barr and his actions, didn't even know about it um, while it was happening and after it happened. I had to kind of. Um, reveal that information to them, which was even shocking to them. But what's really alarming, and and Vanessa Potkin of The Innocence Project and I actually executive produced a TV show about this that we originally called The 4%, but ended up being called The Last Defense, is that according to a National Academy of Science study, using very, very conservative figures, so you can bet that the numbers are actually greater. They said 4% of people on death row are actually innocent. We now have 2,500 facing about facing execution. And if you put that very conservative number that's possibly higher, that means about 120, 125 people are scheduled to be executed that are actually innocent. And think about this, 190 former death row inmates have been exonerated since 1973. And that doesn't mean that they're the only innocent folks, right? right? That we're fortunate enough to have evidence that establish their innocence to the degree necessary for whatever state they they were in. And they went from death row to freedom. And I actually think the statistics, excuse me, the statistic is, (laughs) um, it is one, uh, for every 8.6 people executed, one person's been exonerated. So every time the country executes, you you can't execute half a person, obviously, say nine people, one person has been exonerated. That's 10%. That's not to say that 10% of the people on death row are innocent because a lot of people on death row don't get executed. But that's a staggering statistic when you stop to think about it, that we're executing nine people and freeing one who's on death row. And like you said, the one that we're freeing is, aren't the only innocent ones. So it's, it, it, is, it is difficult. Um, it, it is truly difficult. Um, 
but we you mentioned some good news and hope, anticipation, um, patience. Uh, what did I say? How did I start off with? You know, have you uh, ever had patience for six years? <clears throat> Me? Yeah. Of course not. You don't have it for, <laughs> six for, for half an hour. <laughs> right, yeah. Exactly. So, but we have, well, you and I have a client that we've been representing almost to the day, six that's, years. That's right. Right? Almost no, no, to the no. day. To the day. Is it, he was arrested six on the years, 19th? Six years today. He, he was, was arrested. arrested. So, Nicholas Tartaglione was arrested by the federal authorities uh, and is being prosecuted in the Southern District of New York in White Plains. Uh, right away, uh, they indicated that this was what they referred to as, quote, a high risk, a case where they were likely to seek the death penalty. And on March 14th of 2018, we were told that, in fact, the government was going to seek the death penalty and going to seek to execute our client. Uh, I remember getting a call. I remember the, the two U.S. attorneys called, asked, said they needed to speak to me right away. It was urgent. I remember calling that, uh, calling them back and then both saying, I won't mention their names, but they're both saying, look, Bruce, I'm sorry, but the attorney general has authorized us, in fact, directed us to seek uh, the death penalty here, which means they were going to try to execute our client. And that was the state of affairs until December 13th of this year, five days ago. Um, or six in, days in the ago. middle of arguments well, regarding well, it couldn't be more jury dramatic. selection couldn't be more dramatic. process. Couldn't be more dramatic. So we should tell people what we did is obviously the Biden administration came in and the politics are different. They haven't been trying to execute people, but they have continued to seek the execution of a few people. They've continued to seek the ex- execution of the individual in South Carolina who shot nine people in the church, the Boston Marathon bomber, they're continuing to seek his execution, and they just announced in the Southern District of New York, uh, Saipov, they were going to continue to seek uh, the death to, to have him sentenced to death. His jury selection process is ongoing. And Nick's, since October. Since October. Nick's case has been hanging out there, and while we were all, relatively speaking, confident that they ultimately would decide against it, change their mind, until that happens, it hasn't happened, and we submitted a letter back in May asking them to do just that with the help of uh, a couple of other lawyers, excellent lawyers, I might add, um, and we submitted a lengthy, like, dozens of pages, uh, exhibits and everything else, and tell the story of what happened. We had exhibits. We had exhibits. (laughs) Tell the story of what happened. We were arguing in court. Right. And and I was kind of looking, let let me be selfish for a minute here, Um, but I was looking at the future of my life and thinking to myself, and we've done this before, I have to relocate for months to a different home, a home being a hotel, and to working 24-7, seven days a week for potentially months because that's how long it takes to pick a jury for a death penalty case because in order for them to be qualified, they have to admit or or claim that they uh, would seek a death penalty in certain under cases. Right and if you say you would never seek the death penalty right. Under in the right cases, circumstances, I would vote right. to execute your right. client. Right, yes. right. And it, it's a lot of, it's a careful process. And in any case, if, if we were to have lost that trial, there would be a penalty trial, which can last just as long, if not longer, where the government presents evidence about why your client should be killed, and you present evidence as to why he shouldn't, mitigating information. So we're sitting there, and our great colleagues were making arguments as to how jury selection should be conducted 
And in the middle of it, we had cited a study, and in the middle of it, the government says, uh, Your Honor, we just received a text that might be relevant to this argument, and you understood exactly what that meant. I was like, oh my God, they found a counter study. <laughs> you know, like I was so in I, the I weeds of the I, argument. I knew. Um, so that was really, really excellent news. I but, think but it's- But to finish the story, they went out? They went out. Came back. Came back. 10 minutes later and announced said- Announced the news. And uh, before it was officially announced, we learned, we told our client, we told his family. And I am ever grateful, not only because- I can now envision uh, 2023 in my own apartment for most of it, <laughs> but also because it's it's guarant it's it's a guarantee he won't be executed. And um, all we have to do is get an acquittal, right? And and uh, that's a tremendous. I, I don't. Again, I'm going to make it selfish. It's a really tough pressure on attorneys, um, if you think about it. That. Any strategy you choose might impact the outcome. I mean, think about it. The witnesses you decide to put on, the strategy you make, you know, your review of the evidence. Sometimes you don't figure things out right away or you don't spot something you should right away. It's a tremendous amount of pressure on, on attorneys to do right by their client and ensure that they not be executed by the government. Um, but I will say this. Um, we were talking about um, wrongful convictions and in death penalty cases, and it turns out in death penalty cases, the leading cause of wrongful convictions is uh, informant testimony. Um, but often exonerations these days come in the form of DNA evidence. And I want to talk about the fire that occurred at Erie Basin Auto Pound um, in Red Hook, Brooklyn, um, there was a blaze at an NYPD evidence warehouse, a massive fire, a massive warehouse that stored tons of DNA, biological evidence, clothing, automobiles where victims had been shot in um, among some of the items. And they haven't cataloged what the losses are or how many criminal defendants it impacts or how many victims it impacts uh, were items that were years, maybe decades old. And why that matters is, um, well, twofold. One, if you're a defendant now, uh, you're entitled to review the evidence. Potentially, you're entitled to test the evidence, and you may find exculpatory evidence among that. But think about all the wrongful conviction cases where it took decades or years to locate the evidence, fight with the court, fight with the government to get it tested independently or to have it tested together. And um, that ultimately proves that individuals hadn't committed a murder, hadn't well, committed well, a rape, and they were able to be exonerated. And when evidence is destroyed, hope dies. Well, it, it dies or it springs eternal, depending on which evidence is destroyed for which individual charged. Um, it's entirely possible that the prosecution has lost valuable evidence establishing the guilt of people awaiting trial. And that's a whole right. another realm, right? So right. you have two, everybody. Like if, if I'm a defense lawyer and they lose evidence that implicates my client in I'm a okay case, with that. 
I well, no, I'm not only okay with that, but I'm going <laughs> to say, um, excuse me, dismiss this case. Right. You no, know, so like you, you knew you're you're the government understood that this warehouse was out of control. They had issues during Hurricane Sandy. It was completely flooded. So this happened in 2012. And now what happened, they don't know how the fire got started, but the sprinkling system didn't work. So you, you can't run an evidence warehouse that's sending people away potentially for life for 20 years, for 10 years, uh, people's sons, fathers, you know, husbands. Um, and and you, you can't preserve evidence that the victims are entitled to who, you know, want an individual prosecuted for the death of their loved one. In a, an old, rusty warehouse that's improperly maintained. I mean, it's impossible to get a good restaurant to get an A, you know, from, the, from what is it, the sanitation department? Like, you're looking, you're walking down the street in Manhattan, you're looking at B's, and you're like, I like that restaurant. Like, the, the same should be taking place with evidence warehouses. Okay, okay. so we, we're, we're now um, um, talking restaurants right. and ratings. But let me tell yeah. you. Go ahead. Go ahead. I, I want to tell you a story because this is the impact it has. So when Go I was ahead. an intern at the Innocence Project, I worked with Vanessa Potkin on this case. Uh, the, the client had been convicted of rape. We truly believed he was innocent. And we tried to locate the rape kit that, if tested, we believed would prove definitively uh, that he was innocent. M- among many of the reasons we thought he was innocent, I won't name him by his last name, but his name was Ricky, was it was a single cross-racial identification, which is the leading cause of wrongful conviction, uh, wrongful convictions in the U.S. Um, there were major discrepancies in the identification. There was no forensic evidence tying him to the crime. He had no prior history of sexual violence, no prior history of violence. There were no other witnesses. And when you read the testimony of the, of the victim, who I believe was truly raped, but not by our client, um, there were serious, serious problems with it. Um, so we spent so much time trying to locate the evidence. Um, it took a total of four and a half years for the Innocence Project to finally deem it lost. The district attorney there, the district attorney, not an assigned ADA, said to us, uh, let's have a meeting. Let's come down. And we met with him. And he said, look, the evidence is gone. We can't do anything about it. The rape kit is gone. And we said, okay, well, he goes, does your client want justice or does he want freedom? Both. I can give him freedom, but I can't give him justice. So what he did in that case, and this is kind of on a magnified level, what happens a lot in criminal justice that lay people don't really see is he had a hunch that we had a very strong, compelling case of innocence. So he offered him a plea. He never pled guilty because he was adamant about his innocence. If he pleads guilty, I'll give him time served. He had a life sentence. He'll walk out tomorrow. Um, And that's what we strongly suggested to the client he do. And it was heartbreaking for me as a young um, intern in law school truly believing in the client's innocence, having formed a relationship with him, telling him that it was in his best interest, despite 20 years of claiming he was innocent, to turn around, withdraw that plea and say, I'm guilty of rape, so that he could see his mom, he could see his dad, well, he could see his family. That 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 pressure is on every 
individual charged with a crime, every individual who's faced with those kinds of choices, and you've heard me say this phrase often, out is out. Yes. Out is out. Yep. And I remember talking to Barry Sheck about this, and he kind of took me to task. He said, that's a difficult thing for individuals who have spent their entire life and their identity in asserting their innocence. You can't ask them to sacrifice that integrity. And I said, I don't, but out is out. Out is out. Justice in a kind of a universal sense may be available after we pass on to the next life, but it frequently eludes uh, us in this particular life. And um, that conversation that you've had with you had with that person and the other lawyers that we've all had with individuals who claim innocence but who have an opportunity to escape uh, incarceration for a lengthy period of time. So it, it is. Many innocent people plead guilty. Prosecutors know it, defense lawyers know it, and judges know it. It happens. It happens. So we're going to be back uh, and right after the news, weather, traffic, few commercials, and whatnot uh, with more on Crime and Justice Radio, a little bit more holiday themes. I uh, want to put a quick plug in for our chief sponsor, which is our law firm, Barquette Epstein. Kieran Aldea and Laturco, give us a call at 516-745-1500 for all your litigation needs. We'll see you right after the break. Welcome back to Crime and Justice Radio. My name is Aida Lysenring, and I'm here with Bruce Barquette, who is cracking himself up with Christmas music. <laughs> Name that song. Never make me play that game. Waitress's Christmas Wrapping. Okay. Love it. One of my favorite Christmas songs. Yeah, I need, I, I mean, I need karaoke dots on a screen to know lyrics to it, just about anything, even my own favorite songs. Bah, um, humbug. I, I'm not going to sing because God did not right. grant it's me that. It's all right. That, you know what it is? Christmas, that, Christmas uh, is actually really, really busy in court. <clears throat> And I find that a lot of judges are trying to cram as much as possible, which seems even worse than it's ever been because there's the pandemic COVID backlog of cases and inmates whose cases weren't tried for years and years, and they're all backtracking each other. And I hear in Manhattan, they they can't even have trials five days a week because there's such a shortage of court officers. So they're having difficulty finding courtrooms, um, Defense attorneys and prosecutors that are ready on a vast majority of cases and um, the deadlines are building up, but then you get to like the 23rd or the 22nd and things slow down. By the way, it's unfortunate we haven't tried a case this month because my favorite time of year to try cases is right before Christmas. I find that jurors are much more forgiving. January is horrible. April is wonderful. I've had a lot of acquittals in April. Um, and summer, I don't know. I've never tried a case during the well, summer. I, I, my, my, my rule that we don't try cases when the average daily high is above 70 degrees is going to be challenged this year. But I agree with you. This has been a particularly crazy time for in the courts for Christmas because the pandemic has officially, unofficially ended and everybody's trying to get stuff done. Uh, but you got to take a moment to sit back relax the temperatures are cool go for a walk listen to some christmas music uh have a cup of eggnog and take your time and reflect upon uh, the prior year what you want to do in the coming year it's a great thing that we have in our society that we have this break 
every calendar year where you can reflect back, look forward, and uh, hope for great things in the new year um, while you're thankful for the blessings that you received in the old year. And to pick up on an article I read or a line from an article I read in the New York Times, if the last year was not good, step back and spit, changing your chemistry just a bit so that you can uh, have better times in the, uh, in the new year. So, a um, little more Christmas, we'll see. Maybe, a little more Hanukkah, maybe Festival wait of till, Lights. Wait till the end of the show when we're both outside. <laughs> um, I'm looking at the waste can next to me and thinking it might be able to do that. There's some things about 2022 I'd like to get rid of, but not everything. So, uh, Donald has got himself Donald. in the news again. You know, I... I, I um, not because of his racy cards. Oh, oh, God, can you imagine? I just can't imagine... What would go into somebody's head to think that that was a good thing to do, that that was the appropriate thing, um, that, that somehow a major announcement would be him selling rip-off cards with him as an astronaut because so, so he wasn't one. don't want some for Christmas. I don't want some for Christmas, <laughs> but I'm sure somebody will get me that because that's just the nature of, well, of the friends tell I know. So. Tell, tell the, the, the people that um, are newsed out and don't have the bandwidth to read the fine print what this January 6th panel's recommendation of four criminal charges for Trump over the Capitol riot well, actually means. Is it symbolic? It's Is symbolic. it going to have legs? No. Uh, it's not going to go... Would Merrick Garland, our attorney general, he, he, absolutely be off the case? I mean, would it Would it well, definitely he, go... He's already appointed a special prosecutor. Okay, who is that? Look at this. Uh, yeah, that's like me asking you who the name of the song was. I forget his name. No, yours is much more embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> I am supposed to know this stuff. Um, well, we, I can look it up in a second who the special prosecutor is for Trump. But uh, he, he is not a completely independent special prosecutor. He'll run the investigation. He'll draft a report. He'll give it to Garland. And Garland can adopt it, reject it, and whole or in part. So ultimately, Garland still makes the decision. But it's just done based upon the work of somebody who is independent. Uh, the referral is largely symbolic. When When other agencies make referrals, when judges make referrals, when uh, legislatures make referrals for criminal prosecutions, usually that comes with the uh, law enforcement agency not having the full breadth of understanding of what took place. So something takes place in a courtroom and a judge says, I want the prosecution, I want the police to look at this. And we'll call the district attorney's office and say, look at it. It can happen in civil cases, criminal cases, um, legislatures. Things can come before them and they'll say, we want the attorney general's office or we want the local district attorney to take a look at this. Uh, because the prosecuting authority doesn't have a knowledge of it, maybe not a full understanding of what, what exactly has taken place here. Garland knows full well what went on, is already has the grand jury impaneled. They're already investigating these very allegations. Really? They don't need, yeah, they don't need a referral from Congress. This is utter showmanship on behalf on behalf of Congress. It's Jack a, Smith. It's a meaningless yes, that's the that's the special, special counsel for the United States Department right. of Justice. It's absolutely meaningless. There's no point in doing it other than them to issue their final report before 
you know, a couple of their members go into retirement involuntarily, like Liz look, Cheney look, lost a reelection. Is this him? Do you recognize him? He looks scary. That's an, uh, that's, a, that's, <laughs> he looks like, that, that's a different, that's an old picture of him. He, medieval clean, times executioner. Yeah, no, no, no. He's much more clean cut looking than that. I don't know where, he, that, where that picture came from. NPR. <laughs> so it is, uh, I think, a meaningless uh, symbolic act. Um, I guess it matters a little bit for symbolism, but the attorney generals, they're already doing it. They're already investigating him. And you know they they want him to be charged with sedition, with conspiracy. Do you think he'll be charged? Um, I think he committed crimes. I think he's committed his crimes his entire life, and he's avoided them. He thinks the rules don't apply to him. He has bullied his way out of a number of uh, difficult circumstances. I do think he's going to get charged in in, in uh, Fulton County, in Atlanta for uh, what he did um, with the Georgia results because I think the the heavily Democratic uh, populace and the district attorney down there will be eager to do that. Uh, I don't think he'll get charged with the um, document Mar-a-Lago nonsense unless he gets indicted for um, – the acts around January 6th, in which case I think the Justice Department will bring I, all the charges. I think it them. would be problematic to indict him federally for the Justice Department as opposed to the state of Georgia. Why? Because I think it would undermine the public's confidence in the criminal justice system, maybe not the left, but potentially the right, in a way that would probably do more harm than good in the overall reputation of the already marred reputation of the FBI and of party politics. You know, it's become... I, I, I suppose, but then what does it say to the other side? I mean, look, I, I, I was alive and conscious. I'm and not saying it shouldn't take place. When, I'm not saying when, when Nixon, that a crime when, wasn't committed or was. I'm just saying, I, I think... Nixon clearly committed crimes. Clearly committed crimes. And I thought pardon Ford's pardon of him was the correct thing to do I thought at the time I still believe it was the correct thing to do well maybe Biden will pardon no, him no, be, and but, then but, he can pardon Biden when he returns in 2024 yeah it's not entirely funny yeah. it's not entirely without some sense of truth and humor to it um, but but Nixon was different he admitted in, in essence his culpability he resigned in disgrace and there was nothing left to be done to him except to just kind of go after him and take a pound of flesh, if you will. And having the country put a full stop to it and move on was the right thing to do because Nixon politically was dead. He was not going to be able to do anything else to harm the country. Whereas Trump, Trump is whack-a-mole. Trump is <laughs> continually... Um, look, he wrecked the Republicans' midterm elections. No doubt about it, he wrecked them. Um, and and I, I, I do think... He committed crimes. I do think that it's wrong to let him go just because some people will claim it's political. How it's, bipartisan is the committee? How many? How many? Two Republicans. Two Republicans. Cheney uh, and who, who's the other? Uh, I really Adam Kinzinger. I I recommend turning off the news for like four weeks. It's unbelievable. Your mind becomes sharp again. Well, we, we, you become functional in society. <laughs> I can't tell you how much work I've actually gotten done. It's amazing. Um, I'm happier. <laughs> like, just try it sometime. Just get off Twitter. 
um, and see well, what but, happens. But not not the people that follow us. You should continue to follow us at Crime and Justice FM. Okay. And you good, should good follow, plug. You should follow us on good spontaneous in, plug Instagram at Crime and Justice Radio. Um, so please do. But you know, if you want to lose the news, I guess you can do that. Well, and I, and I don't mean lose the news. I mean kind of. Get, get Focus of, not on the theatrics and the clown shows and look at the real news. And speaking of, I want to talk about another committee investigation, but this was a Senate investigation um, that recently found that the Bureau of Prisons did not prevent, detect, and stop recurring sexual abuse in at least four federal prisons, including abuse by senior prison officials. Um and I think this is really important because we forget about women in prison. We just don't really think about it as much. We don't think of women as criminals. Uh, we we well, know that they're not a, a the greater uh, population in prisons. Um, but one of my favorite clients ever uh, was incarcerated at the Metropolitan Detention Center, a female. And I say favorite clients ever. I mean, it's a, a woman who is one of the most int- friend, intelligent women you one said. One of the smartest ever, people I've ever people, met. Yeah. One, and certainly one of the smartest women I've ever met uh, and, and individuals. Um, she was at the MDC and, and she was also in another local institution uh, upstate. And she wrote letters uh, to me describing her experiences. And they were horrific in what went on in both places and I, I've kept the letters uh, it's been 20 some odd years since I've represented her uh, I've kept the letters and I've often urged her to publish them and she's still fearful that if she does the, the government will come back yeah the PTSD inmates have from their experiences in prison is unbelievable one of our clients still talks about to this day and he only spent three years in jail when he falls asleep and looks at shadows on the wall of his bedroom. He pictures cockroaches running up and down the walls as he experienced during his time in prison. But moving back to this federal investigation, and I think it's important because it's much easier to victimize an inmate because they have criminal records or they have criminal accusations and they are essentially discarded human beings And because they're there, because of a criminal allegation or conviction, it impacts their credibility and they have more difficulty getting others to listen to them. Um, This investigation found recurrent rampant sex abuse in at least four federal prisons, but there were others where that was found as well. Um, A just repeated pattern of rampant sexual abuse against women this was in New York, in California, in Florida, in Kentucky. Um, what was, look, uh, how is this surprising, right? You have individuals that are literally incarcerated, like literally in jail, in handcuffs, in jail cells, uh, 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 walled off from the rest of the society with no ability to contact even their loved ones without permission of the guards who apparently were abusing them. Right, and I, and I hate to say this, but we always have to be honest about what other individuals might think when you spring the allegation. Um, People are wary to believe inmates and they think a woman might be making up the allegations uh, to manipulate the system or to get out of an undesirable situation. But there were so many um, 
women that came forward and testified credibly. Uh, one, Linda De La Rosa, who was brave enough to do so, said the system failed at every level, management from the warden on down repeatedly. And she was at a federal medical center in Lexington, Kentucky, and it was a mini- minimum security prison. So to me, that means she we wasn't in for, we actually went there, we there, but I don't think she was there for a violent <laughs> crime. Um, and she claimed they failed to monitor, supervise, discipline, and remove male correction officers that she called predators sexually abusing female inmates. And that's just horrific. Um, it's not part of the punishment. It certainly shouldn't be. And I hope they sue. And I hope they make a lot of money. Um, and I know that will not heal them. Um, but let it be enough that correction facilities pay attention and change it. Well, it, look, the, 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 and one of the laws that now exists in New York, in New York law, uh, New York penal system, is that inmate cannot consent to um, sexual relationships with a employee of the correctional institution. So a guard can't have sex with an inmate and claim consent. And that came from another client of our firm, uh, very famously, Amy Fisher, um, who uh, we represented a number of years ago and were able to get her out of uh, prison earlier than she otherwise would have been out. Uh, part of how, how you, I'm not going to tell the Amy Fisher story right now. Tell, <laughs> Five minutes. <clears throat> but, oh, I, we could, but I, I don't. It was she was uh, accused the guard of sexually assaulting her in jail, and the guard said she consented. And the um, they went back and forth, and she literally saved before the blue dress, saved clothing uh, with his, and I'll put it in quotes, his DNA end quote on on it, and it was conclusive that he had uh, sexual relationships with her. Uh, but the law wasn't on the books then, and so they they enacted that statute after that, realizing there was a huge flaw because you're talking about power dynamics. How can somebody in prison possibly consent to having sex with a guard? And there was, speaking of the death penalty and sex, there's an individual who was on death, who was sentenced to death in the Eastern District of New York not that long ago, Ronell um, Wilson. Yes, yes, who had killed two police officers. Yeah. Um, and he impregnated a guard uh, and she had his baby. So they had sexual relationships. In jail, uh, she ended up getting fired and prosecuted. It's weird. I'm gonna I'm gonna bring it to a kind of more understandable level for the average person who maybe hasn't done time in prison. Um, I got pulled over for <laughs> talking on my Excuse cell me? phone, and uh, the cop asked me out on a date. Did you go? No. Um, and the weird thing. Did he give you a ticket? No. So you and, flirted just enough to avoid the ticket, <laughs> but you didn't have to go on the date? But it was, was it cute? was no. <laughs> so I wonder if I retold the story and he was really, really cute, whether I would have jumped at that opportunity and not felt uh, intimidated and like well, I was not consenting, but I kind of... Have you ever dated a cop? No, 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 no. Up no. and personal for, with Aida. No, let's not go there. Okay, we're, we're not going to, we're not going to go through your list of... I'm not my list. Okay. I didn't bring this up. Go, but go ahead, Vince. But uh, it was, I got to say, it was started like. Started with Christmas. I find ended it. With I've cross examined cops in murder cases, but it's an entirely different thing when you're getting pulled over 
for something as minor as a traffic ticket or a moving violation. And I was nervous. And I don't know why, but just like that, the 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 lights, the pulling over, the you're on your way somewhere. Do you have your license and registration ready to go? You're kind of fumbling, right? So and and he he asked me if he could give me a call sometime. And I think I said something like, I have a boyfriend, the fictitious boyfriend <laughs> at the time that came in handy. And he said, I don't care. And I said, well, I'm in your industry. And I gave him my business card. I said, feel free to call the office. And I was hoping he'd look me up and never call me on a date. <laughs> and he did not, but I was really intimidated. So I can only imagine if I were in prison, um, kind of at a low point and intimidated by the situation, how much harder that would be. Um, look, I, I see your point. I saw it before I started teasing I did you. not go on a date. <laughs> I could see it before, but you don't have to kind of make up examples or, or develop examples. You're in prison and a guard comes right. up and solicits you. You can't but, say no. But uh, No, that's not necessarily <clears throat> true is what some other people will say. They'll say, you're a grown woman. You know how to say no. You know how to complain. Um, many women in those situations developed a romantic interest for the guard. Um, and and they'd argue that. But, but now that argument doesn't stand because the law is what it is, uh, which kind of helps and clarifies it and tells COs, stay away from inmates, right? Well, you, yeah. You, even uh, if, if you <clears throat> think she's consenting, even if she actually consents, the law says she does not. And the same is true for men, I gather. The law protects men yes, the same does. way. It does indeed. In fact, we have a client who was abused by a pastor in jail uh, in a prison upstate New York that we are um, acting on. So um, one more plug for our firm before we close out. Uh, give us, uh, take a look at our website, barquetteepstein.com. We do all kinds of criminal litigation and civil litigation and appellate work. Uh, I like to think that we're one of the best, if not the best, in the country for that. Uh, I want to wish everybody a happy Hanukkah. Uh, Merry Christmas. We'll see you again after the, the new year. A uh, couple of best of shows coming up, and uh, we'll see what the new year brings for Crime and Justice Radio. I hope you have a very, very merry holiday season and that you have hope and inspiration and love and that you count your blessings. Same to you. Uh, Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Happy holidays, everybody. Happy New Year. We'll see you in January. The views and opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of this station, JVC Broadcasting Management, or its sponsors.